and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Nearly one in three kids in Britain are living in poverty. More than seven million of us are waiting for treatment on the NHS. These are bull statistics and we've got used to hearing them now, but there are millions of stories behind those stats and one of the people who tells those stories is Ros Wynne-Jones who writes the Real Britain column in the Mirror. Welcome to The Bunker, Ros. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. This is the first time I think I've interviewed a Ros, so <laughs> hopefully our listeners won't get too confused. Tell us about your column in the Mirror for people who haven't uh, read it. Well, the Real Britain column started uh, about 10 years ago, and it was initially a response to the massive mailbag that we were getting um, as a result of austerity cuts that had kind of come in under the sort of 2010 uh, coalition government. By about 2012, we were just getting so many letters to the paper saying basically benefits that I've relied on for a long time have been cut or people saying, oh, I've worked all my life. I don't understand why, why is this happening to me? I'm having to go to this assessment. Worried parents talking about their disabled kids. So we thought we owed some sort of response to those readers. My job really initially was to read the letters, get back to people, talk to them, see what would make stories. And we just felt that there was a lot of there were a lot of stories that were not being reflected in the mainstream press and people's just what was happening to people was being really neglected. So we started the page and then we were just completely overwhelmed, really, by just stories of school cuts and library cuts and just, end, I mean, the amount of, it was basically the human story of the austerity experiment. It's fascinating you should say that because I read recently from someone who was a fairly well-off commentator, I think, on Twitter saying, you know, nobody really noticed the austerity cuts until about 2020. It's like, you know, it was a gradual erosion, but none of us noticed. But obviously you did notice and so did a lot of other people who didn't have a voice. Yeah, I mean, I find that absolute, it's just incredible. It's like these cuts have all happened to, to somebody else. And I think, I mean, to me, it was a huge causal factor of the of the Brexit arguments as it went on with these kind of two Britons were created where you'd go between one set of people you know I live in metropolitan London it's Peckham so you know we're surrounded by a lot of different types of people but you'd be with people who are fairly comfortably off with life and then you'd go and visit the other end of the country in Wigan or somewhere where people were just living these incredibly difficult lives and you and I mean, I, I particularly remember at one time going to visit somewhere in the Midlands. They had like 12 libraries in their sort of overall patch and they were, lo- they were going down to five. And you just thought, whoever's going to hear, no one's ever going to hear about this. The libraries are just going to go. They're in quite working class areas. There's not people who are going to mount, you know, they're not going to be writing to 38 degrees with a petition or whatever or raising their heads above the parapet. These, these libraries are just gone. And when he went to talk to the communities, it was things like, you know, the Gujarati women's meeting on a Thursday or whatever that was lost forever. But, you know, who who cares about that in the chattering classes in London? And I think this was part of what really fueled a division, a, a sense of two Britons that was, was then kind of fed into the Brexit debate. So I imagine that your mailbag hasn't got any smaller in the last couple of years. Um, what, are, what are readers contacting you about at the moment? What's the most common things that are coming up? One of the sad things to me is that I think there are people that actually just don't write now, like they're just used to it. It's like they've been cut and cut and cut and of course this is lost and this is being lost. There's a certain weariness among readers but then there are always new levels and layers of cuts I suppose. I mean that's partly why I'm quite interested in the sort of strike action that's going on at the moment because I think 
for the first time, we're starting to actually see people mobilising and working out what they can do to stop it. And we've always seen, you know, huge resistance in communities that has often been invisible. People just getting together and saying, do you know what, we'll just feed each other. No one else is coming to help us. So let's just get organised and get the soup kitchens open and let's, you know, find ways to share affordable clothes and keep some sort of library run by volunteers. But yeah, I just, it makes me a bit sad because I think particularly from disabled people, I don't think I get the same letters that I used to. There's just an assumption now that the system is brutalised and cruel and won't give them what they need. Yeah, I was doing some research recently into how the number of claims against benefit decisions had changed during the 2010s, once they started basically making it much, much more difficult for you to appeal against them. And the number just fell, you know, and the number fell. And it was clear the number hadn't fallen because the Department of Work and Pensions was getting, was making better decisions. It was just because it was impossible for people to work out and and pay to to, um, actually appeal those decisions. And it seems to have been overlooked by the media classes in London without wishing to stereotype a lot of people working in them, that this has been happening? Disabled people have been at the brunt of all of these cuts, but they've also been at the vanguard of the resistance, really. And I think the trouble is that the toll, if you think that you're not getting support that you need, but also you're having to constantly fight, like the levels of exhaustion that people are at now after 12 years is pretty profound. I would find it hard to fight back against all of that stuff when I don't have additional needs that are being, you know, supported. I, I'm pretty tired after 12 years, you know, writing this column. But I think initially when I started writing the column, I genuinely thought that if we just exposed these things and showed them to the world, that people would think, oh, I had no idea this was what was kind of was going on. And people would make a change. And it ju- just has not been the case. It's almost... In the sort of Osborne years, there was obviously a, a deliberate vilification of people on benefits and the, the whole sort of scroungers narrative was pushed out there in a deliberate attempt to make these cuts kind of acceptable to people. And I guess in some ways it's easier for people to take on that narrative because it's a lot easier to think that way, that people don't really need the help or that everybody's swinging the lead and, you know, so on rather than actually think there are disabled people literally freezing, sitting in the dark, you know, waiting for their carer to come for half an hour so they can go to the toilet, like, later on in the day. Who wants to think that that's our great country, you know, that we live in? Yeah, I mean, these are often quite simple stories, but very moving ones. You recently talked to a 95-year-old man who'd been left waiting on a trolley in A&E for 26 hours. He was especially poignant because he was... A veteran, of course, it was tragic in any situation, but there was a picture of him as a young man in during the Second World War, and you thought, this is not what you thought you were fighting for. I mean, obviously, the debt owed to that generation, the war veteran generation, is huge, and it just really feels that we have not kept our side of the bargain. Like our, our later generations have not kept our side of the bargain to keep people safe and to you know, for the state to provide for them in the way that they provided for the state, you know, in their youth. Stanley Solomons is an amazing guy. He's, you know, he's 95. Um, you mustn't call him a war hero because he gets very cross. They say he's, he's not a war hero, definitely not. Having survived the Blitz, he went to train with the code breakers at Bletchley Park, um, the sort of code and cipher school. He later joined the RAF. Um, 
he worked at a listening post, sort of very close to the border of communist China. And, you know, he's a, he's a really brave guy who's paid in. There he was, 26 hours on this, you know, in a corridor at um, Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, like tw- 26 hours. You know, and obviously not complaining, but because he's of that generation, but but feeling that it was wrong, and his his daughter and his granddaughter felt it was very wrong. But the interesting thing to me when that story happened was that I'd actually interviewed Stan before, so I'd spoken to him in 2019 when he'd actually been 12 hours on a trolley um, at the Leicester Royal Infirmary, and I'd seen some tweets at that time by his daughter and his granddaughter talking about his heroism and how he is now on this trolley. So you're thinking 2019, 12 hours seemed like an impossible time to be on a trolley. Suddenly, you know, 2022, he's on there for 26 hours. And that's the sense in which you can, it felt like one man's story was kind of telling about the deteriorating conditions in the NHS. So I thought I'd have a look at the figures. In 2019, it was about 2,300 people were waiting more than 12 hours on a trolley in A&E. And in 2022, that amount was almost 33,000. So you get you get that sense of like all these stands which are happening all over the country. And then we wonder why doctors and nurses feel the need to strike. You know, they obviously feel that people are going to die anyway. It's like we've got to do something shocking to get attention to this. Yeah, there's definitely a feeling these strikes have been building for a long time and they're not by any means just about wages. Let's talk about Wigan. George Orwell wrote a book in 1937 called The Road to Wigan Pier when Britain was still pretty much in the Depression. You've been to Wigan Pier, haven't you? What was it like? I recreated George Orwell's journey to Wigan Pier through the north and the midlands of the country over a kind of two-year period um, with two of my colleagues. We basically had the idea that we'd stop everywhere that Orwell stopped on that journey. So people think of it as just a journey to Wigan, but of course he's kind of in Yorkshire and yeah, and the Midlands and Birmingham and Liverpool and all sorts of different places, Manchester. I basically had a sort of battered uh, copy of the Road to Wigan Pier and just used to refer to each section, see where he'd gone. We'd knocked on the same doors of places that he'd stayed and we spoke to people and we had this real sense of how Basically, things had improved so much uh, since the time that he was there, but they were now going backwards. So it was when you sort of trace the history of the individual places that we'd stopped, it felt as if, you know, obviously at that time, for example, he was writing a lot about mining, you know, the slums, the poverty that people were living in. But quite often when we knocked on those doors again, now we'd find that people were in kind of private rental slums, you know, houses full of cockroaches and damp and terrible terrible conditions between now and then those houses had got better and actually been quite good there were very interesting parallels and I think a lot of that's you know driven by gig economy work and very low paid work and and work that doesn't happen very often you know it's kind of you don't know how many hours you're going to get each week and you know we we encountered a lot of people in in great difficulty but there were also some, you know, incredible moments on the journey and real characters that we met along the way. Last night, I heard Lisa Nandy, the MP for Wigan, gave uh, the George sort of annual George Orwell lecture, and she was reflecting on kind of Orwell's journey and, um, you know, many of those same things, the same sort of characteristics about Wigan and Wigan's place in the world and the legacy left by Orwell, which in some ways 
you know, a lot of a lot of people in Wigan don't like the road to Wigan Pier and they don't like Orwell. And they think he was a posh bloke from Eton who came down and peered at all of them and said that they smelled and, you know, smelled of tripe. But I think other people understood that actually he had great admiration, particularly for the miners, and that he was trying to reflect, I guess, you know, something which it, it, we very modestly tried to do in the column. We just tried to reflect how people are actually living to people who are not living in those situations. The other thing you've been reporting on, uh, or writing a book about, in fact, is child refugees, the um, children who cross the channel in small boats. Some of them recently have actually disappeared since landing, and we don't know where they are. How did you start writing about that? I first met my friend Abdul a few years ago. He um, was up for a Pride of Sport award, the Mirror Runs uh, Pride of Britain and Pride of Sport, for people that have achieved incredible things in their field. And Abdul was a young horse rider who was extremely promising. He was at the Northern School of Racing. Talking to him, he had this most incredible story, which was that basically he'd come originally from Darfur, fled as a refugee. After His village was burned down. His mum and dad were killed. All sorts of horrendous things happened. He'd made this incredible journey initially across land through um, Chad and Libya, um, through France. Eventually came under a lorry. Um, that was his way of crossing the channel into the UK as a child, but he didn't really used to speak. And then one day he'd been referred to a kind of a horse, a local horse project, because he'd happened to pop out in his lorry in uh, Newbury, uh, the sort of racing, racing area. And there were various pro- projects around with kind of racehorses. And he got sent to this, you know, project uh, working with old racehorses to sort of try and open him up a bit. and incredibly had this incredible rapport with horses was an amazing rider and that's because Darfuri kids ride at a very very young age and kind of live with animals and we thought this was a way potentially to try and tell a human story of migration he and I kind of wrote the book together um he was still only 21 by the time uh, I met him he'd come under a lorry when he was just 14 in a sort of previous life I used to cover a lot of Africa and I'd worked in Darfur and Chad and, you know, lots of lots of the places that he'd been in the same years. So there was a sort of strange parallel between his experiences and my experiences. Obviously, his were a lot worse and they were happening to him and I could always leave, you know, and come back to the UK. But it just sort of meant that we could sort of, I could kind of visualise a lot of the places that he'd been and we were able, we had a sort of rapport. So we've got a new project that we're running now called People Move on Instagram. And the idea behind that is it's a bit like the sort of humans of New York on um, Instagram. A colleague of mine, incredible colleague of mine, Phil Coburn, who himself uh, suffered life-changing injuries as a photographer in um, Afghanistan, has been photographing for us people who've uh, come to the UK seeking sanctuary. And so these pictures run on Instagram with a a very brief story about the people and we asked them to get show as an object um, that helps kind of describe their home or their journey. And some of the things on there are just really, really profound. Like there's a guy with a bee smoker because he used to keep bees in Syria. Um, there's lots of people with different types of prayer beads and different things that are important to them. 
Um, sometimes it might be a stethoscope, somebody that was a doctor, you know, where they where they've come from, um, or some kind of something sort of relating to their profession or a hat. There's a there's a, yeah. I mean, they're just anyway. It's a it's a project we're trying to keep it going because one of my beliefs is that if we can just stop talking about refugees as a problem, as these kind of sort of faceless invaders and actually look at people as individuals and, and think about what you would have done in their shoes. I would challenge anyone to look at people move, read those stories and think, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Would you get on that boat? You know, would you leave your country? Would you have made any decisions differently to those people? Because the more that we hear from those people directly, the more I think, you know, we can regain our own humanity. You've met a lot of people who are trying to keep things going, helping people who can't cope to try to cope. Who have you been most touched, most perhaps impressed by recently? Going back to Wigan, there's an incredible woman called Barbara Netterton uh, who runs a project called Sunshine House. And it's interesting, we, we first found it because it's very near to the tripe shop that Orwell um, stayed in in an area called Skulls in, in Wigan. She's just one of those people that I've really... I, I just couldn't admire her enough, basically. It's like, like she's somebody like life's never given Barbara anything. Um, and yet she's built this most incredible community around herself out of a little community centre. Like they were feeding hundreds of people a week in the pandemic. Um, they run so many projects. They have so many people that volunteer with them. But it's that, I suppose it's that line between where those projects really work, there are people that, like when you come in to volunteer, you also kind of get fed or you might get access to different services. So there's kind of a, it, it's not entirely clear who's who's a volunteer and who's a recipient. It's a very sort of community organic kind of arrangement where people tend to keep a lot more dignity than in a situation where, you know, somebody who's more middle class is handing something over to you, I guess. The other thing that's given me a lot of hope this year um, I've been involved in a community sponsorship um, project for refugees um, in my sort of neighbourhood in Peckham. That has just been a really profoundly moving experience, and there are hundreds of these all over the country. So if you feel really frustrated about the fact that Sue Ella Braverman is the Home Secretary and all kinds of terrible things are happening, but you can feel very, very powerless in that situation, um, getting involved in community sponsorship is kind of amazing. So we've spent a couple of years basically fundraising and supporting uh, a Syrian family who otherwise had been trapped in Turkey for years and just watching them join the education system, use the health service, to see how, just how lovely they are and what terrible things they've escaped. They've got a very profoundly disabled son. has just been a real, really life-changing experience for me, but also has felt like... Until we get rid of this government, there's not much we can do about immigration policy. So let's do the things that we can. I was going to ask you if you had a message for Rishi Sunak, but to be honest, is there any point? But I'll ask you what your what your message for <laughs> Keir Starmer would be. I think my message to Keir Starmer would be the message that I'd give to any Labour leader, really, which is be bold, you know, be Labour. You've laid these incredibly cautious um, foundations, painstakingly laid them, and that you know, and they're really solid and they're ready to go. But well, now we need to talk about 
the beautiful thing that you're going to build on top of them because after all that was the point of laying those foundations in the first place so you know i guess the question is what what is this beautiful cathedral of light and ambition and community that you're about to now now build and you need to conjure that for us so that we can see it and know that we're working towards it ros thanks so much for joining us thank you thank you for having me it's been really interesting If you're able to, you can support The Bunker and help us keep interviewing fascinating people. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomasiewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.